Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your love for us. Thank you that even when things look dark and bleak, and maybe especially when things look dark and bleak around us, we can trust that light has overcome the darkness and that, that you are in control over all things. And we thank you that for all of your transcendent power that you have not stayed distant from us. And we pray today that you would help us to see that you've come close, that you've drawn near. Open our eyes to see Jesus more sweetly. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to John chapter 1, where we just started a series in the Gospel of John. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some journal Bibles that are available. You can grab one of those if you like, uh, so you can take notes along the way, or it'll also be on the screen for you. As we continue today, and in the second week in, in the first chapter of John that we're looking at, this is an important text for us, and a beautiful text, a poetic text, one that is among these, uh, the, there's passages in Scripture that I feel like they're, they're so beautiful and so concise and so clear and so powerful that it, it's almost hard to know what I'm supposed to say as a preacher as we walk through them. And that's how I feel about this text tonight. And it, but it's important for us because God can feel distant from us. It's hard sometimes that to know how to believe in someone or something that we can't see and to, that you might experience some sense of God's presence, but it's hard. And, and when we look around at the world around us, it can feel difficult to see God's presence and activity in this world. But the Bible's storyline tells us that there was a time that human beings walked with God, physically, literally, that in the garden that he had made, that the man and woman walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, that they were in God's presence and there was nothing to hide. There was no shame, no guilt, no fear, no shadow within them that they were in perfect unity with each other, in perfect harmony with God's created world, and that this was the state that we were created for. But we know that didn't last. We know that's not our experience now. And, and Genesis captures this for us, that, that God's created people chose to believe a lie and to rebel against him, to uh, turn against his instructions for them, to question God's goodness and his trustworthiness and his whether he actually knew what was best for them. And, and so the doubt led to deceit, which led to desire, which led to sin, which led to guilt, which led to fear, it led to shame and to scrambling. And the result is that all of humanity was plunged into darkness and we have continued those same cycles all the way through today. The light of God's presence was suddenly too painful for the darkness of human guilt and shame. And God's majesty and holiness and presence, which had been a comfort, were now a harsh and threatening reality. 
And so God, to protect the people he created and loved, removed them from his presence and limited the experience of their lives and introduced death as a limiter so that it would limit the damage human beings could do and it recognizes the limits each of us has for how much pain we can endure. But through today, men and women are born into and raised in darkness, only hearing about the light of God's glory and, and seeing echoes of it in the world God has made and in others who were created with his image and likeness to reflect something of his light. In his pursuit of his people, we see it laid out in God's self-revelation in his own word. But we see in scripture that no one who is flesh can see God and live. No one who is flesh, who is human, is, is, lives this life, can come into God's presence and live up to his standard of holiness or earn our way back into the light of his glory on our own. It took the reverse. The word, who we saw last week, in whom is life and light, came into the world. His own people didn't know him and recognize him and rejected him. But the light of life, the eternal word of God, became a man so that the chasm between God's people and the, their creator could be bridged and light could be shown to overcome the darkness. So that's what we see in our passage today. That, and so this is the, the, the stunning, arresting claim of John 1. And this is still just the prelude to the gospel story. It's setting things up for us. So last week, we looked at the first five verses and saw that Jesus is at the beginning, that Jesus made all things, that he is light and life, and that he has conquered darkness. Today, we see that God is not far from every one of us. And so we're going to walk through verses 6 to 18, but I'm going to read the first five verses as well so that we see these connect and how they connect. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, at the center of our text today, and foundational to John's gospel and to our understanding of what Christianity is, what Christianity claims, is verse 14. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So as we look at this section, this prelude to the gospel, that's the big idea here is that the word became flesh. Now, this is incredible because, and this is part of why we took the first five verses last week on their own, is because it's only if we understand the transcendence of verses one to five. That this is, when John says the word here, logos, he's talking about, about God himself, that this presence was the creative power of God, active alongside God, but also that the word was God at the beginning. That God is eternal and has been from, from eternity past. And so the idea then that this, this transcendent God now becomes what theologians call imminent. That the transcendent God draws near and actually takes on human body and takes on humanity and all of its physicality is, is a, a, it's more beautiful than what we could possibly capture. And so we're going to look at this in five parts tonight. At first, light came into the world. And so we get a little bit of a preview, and we'll see this throughout John as well. John, as he writes stories, doesn't write them always in a linear way. And a lot of, uh, of the way that we tell stories in Western storytelling is very linear. It's events happen in a progression. John is more of a, is, it has more of an Eastern approach to storytelling, and so it's very circular. And so he'll drop hints and then he'll drop a hint and kind of get closer and closer and closer to what's happening in the story. And so we see that here, that in verses 6 to 8, he talks about this guy, John, John the baptizer. He then talks about him in verse, uh, in, later on in verse 15, and then he comes back to him in verse 19. So he kind of drops him in along the way, and then next week we're going to look more fully at John's ministry. But here's what he says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks, after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so John here is the precursor. He's the voice crying out in the wilderness, we'll see, that preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, at times not even aware of who he was preparing the way for until God made that clear. But John here was saying he was not the light. He is not the light of the world coming in, but he came to prepare the way and to tell others that the light was coming and that it would break into darkness. All four Gospels begin with John's ministry. And, and it's the start of Jesus' public ministry in all four Gospels. And so he gets introduced right here at the start. Now, if we only read this passage and didn't keep reading, we might think that, of course, the light broke into the world and, and the brilliance of Jesus' light was on full display right away. But the Gospel of John shows us another reality, that people missed it. People had different expectations. Jesus showed glimpse of his, of his glory. We'll see at the first half of John's gospel, there are seven signs Jesus performs, and, and even with those, people still missed it. And that the glory of the light of the world is ultimately revealed in the brutality of the cross. And I'm convinced that that is one of John's main purposes in writing his gospel. I think his primary audience was his kindred. It was Jewish people, and he was trying to show that it is not dissonant to believe that the glory of the Messiah would come in his death on the cross. But in fact, that, that was perfectly consistent with what God had prophesied. 
And so John here is, or the gospel writer, is talking about John the baptizer, which I say baptizer because I, like, I feel, we all call him a different word, right? He's usually John the Baptist, but I feel like that, like, unnecessarily excludes our Anglican and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and so he isn't denominationally bound. And in fact, I'll leave that alone, never mind, I was going to say, I think... I think John would have some things to say to people in various movements in these days. He's a character, I can't wait to dig into him next week, because I feel like he's somebody in scripture that we just get little glimpses of, and he's so interesting. He's so interesting. So, we'll talk about him more next week. Here what we see is that he was showing the reality of the entry of the light into the darkness, and that the, the word was gonna take on flesh and go into the deepest heart of darkness, and betrayal, and suffering, and injustice, and in death. And that to show that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so that shows us that while we stumble around in the darkness in our own lives through failure and betrayal and suffering and our own sin and rebellion and injustice we face and even to death, that darkness cannot win. But this gets right into what follows, right? Second, that God's own did not receive him. So light was coming into the world, but God's own people rejected him. So read this in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so, here, when John says the true light was coming into the world, this is language that he uses throughout his gospel as well. And so, again, we talked about this last week, right? That this, is, this prelude is kind of the first movement, almost like music in an opera, or in a music in a, in a soundtrack of a movie where it's, it's dropping hints and themes that are gonna come up all the way through. And so we see this later that, that Jesus is called the true light, that he's called, he talks about true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. He is the true bread from heaven, the true vine. And, and so in this, what, what, when John uses that language that he is the true of something, it means genuine and real, but it also means the ultimate that he is the fullness of this, this metaphor that's used throughout scripture. And so, for instance, like, bread from heaven is not unique to Jesus' teaching in John's gospel, right? Where else do we see bread from heaven in the biblical storyline? Well, in Exodus, literal bread falls from heaven in manna that people collect on the ground and are able to bake into bread. And God provides for his people that way. And so when Jesus says, when John says that Jesus is the true bread of heaven, he's not saying that the manna was less real, but what he's saying is that Jesus is the ultimate expression that nourishes our souls. As one theologian said, other persons or institutions may claim to be light or to be worshipers or to be a vine or to be bread from heaven or even to be God, but John sets out to present the true light, the true vine, the true bread, the true God. And so all these themes come together in Christ. But, but what we're told here is that Jesus, the ultimate light, the one who we saw in the first five verses, is the source of all light and life for all of humanity. That means that he has not only created this whole place, but Jesus is the one who sustains all things. He's the reason right now that your lungs continue to take in air, that your heart continues to beat, that you are able to hear from God's word audibly right now, the reason you keep living is because Jesus is sustaining your life. And that he is the light of all the world and the life and the source of all life 
when he came into this world, the people that he had made didn't recognize him. They didn't know him. And, and even worse, they rejected him. The very people that he was sustaining and giving the breath in their lungs to speak against him had, were rejecting him. His own people did not receive him. The heirs of the covenants God had made with the patriarchs, with Abraham and Moses and David, the heirs of those promises that God had given his own people still did not recognize him or receive him. This is nothing new, though. This isn't novel in the New Testament. In Isaiah 65, you can hear God speaking about his people, and he says there, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. This is the definition of what it means to pursue darkness rather than light. See, Isaiah gets, it's, it gets hard. If you do Bible reading plans, a lot of people get confused in Isaiah. It's a large prophetic book. There's long poetic sections in it. But, the, but Isaiah at its core it shows God's loving pursuit of a people that continually reject him. And here, this definition of, of its people who who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Like We can look back at the people of Jesus' time and say, how did they reject him? How did they miss this? Like, I think I would have been different. And then we neglect the reality that so often we can be defined this way, and this is certainly the spirit of our time right now. A rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. See, we need to see that and be careful of and take the warning that our love for darkness will keep us from the light of God. Now, I know on this, I, some of you are probably hearing that and even now you're like, love for darkness. I mean, I'm, I can think about what that means and you have an idea of what it looks like when people live their lives in darkness and, you're, and you might look at yourself and say like, I'm not that, that sounds, those are people who are seedy and gross and do horrible things and I don't think that's what we see here. It's walking in darkness is rejecting God and pursuing what you think is best for you. It's very simple. It's very clear in the text. I thought about this practically this morning because we're, we're reaching that time of year where I know it's like late summer. Like, remember a couple of weeks ago when it was beautiful and cool and people were like breaking out sweaters and those of us who have been in D.C. for a little bit longer were like, just hang on. <laughs> it's going to get hot again. This, that was fake fall. Well, hopefully we're actually seeing that as we come to the end of September here. But we're reaching the point of the year where, where the, the days are beginning to shorten. And as that happens, like this morning when I got up, um, and was getting prepared before the morning service. When I, got, when I woke up this morning, it was still dark in our bedroom. It, it hasn't been all summer, but it was pretty dark this morning. And so I, know, I knew that, and so beforehand, I try not to wake Alyssa up too much in the mornings on Sundays because she doesn't need to be up when I get up. 
And so I had all my stuff laid out and like shoes and socks and underwear and jeans. And, and then I realized like, oh shoot, I didn't grab a shirt. And so I kind of walked into my closet blindly and I came out with this one. Thank goodness it worked. <laughs> and then tried to like slip out of the bedroom, but there's stuff and shoes on the floor and other things and like trying to wiggle my way through and sense my way through and make it to the bathroom without waking too many people up. I think my family's laughing because they're like, the whole house was shaking, you woke us all up. But in the darkness, it's much harder to navigate. You're just kind of stumbling around looking for something, reaching for something. And the later we get into the year, by the time we hit like December and we're hitting the shortest days of the year, I don't know, maybe you're a morning person who just like wakes up wide awake at 5 a.m. every day, ready to go. That is not my life. <laughs> and like, I think when, when it's really dark, especially when it gets cold outside and it's a little cold in the room and you, you have warm blankets and that alarm starts going off, like I don't even like look for the right button. I just start slapping my iPhone, hoping it turns off. Because, why? Because you get comfortable. You don't want to turn on lights too fast because it hurts your eyes. You, it's cozier. You just want to stay there. I think when, when we think about what it looks like to live in darkness, we, try, we in our minds like distance ourselves from that by casting that as the worst of the worst. I think biblically, the imagery is much closer to we just become so comfortable in the environment we in, we're, we're in that we don't want to wake up. We don't want to turn on the lights because it hurts, it's uncomfortable, and we've fallen asleep. And so here, I think that's closer to the image we're getting. That our love for darkness, though, our love for staying in, beneath the covers of the, of the world that we live in keeps us from knowing God and seeing God, seeing God and receiving Jesus and coming to salvation. Why? Because that leads to the third point tonight. Because he brings us from darkness to light. Verses 10 and 11 on their own feel pretty hopeless. So thank God that verses 12 and 13 are here. So he came, he was in the world, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own people, but they did not receive him. But look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the blo not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the hope that breaks in. That even though people love darkness and don't want to come back to the light, that Jesus gives us hope that we can. That he brings us from darkness to light. And, and we can see this in John's gospel. The whole gospel can be organized chapters 1 to 12 and chapters 13 to 21. And in the first half, some people have noted you could, you could really show the entire gospel in these verses. That... In verses one to, or chapters 1 to 12, you see his own people did not receive him. You see the rejection of Jesus in the first 12 chapters. In verses 13 to 21, we see the accomplishment of our, our redemption that for all who did receive him, this is what we are given. We are given, we're brought in not just as a people anymore, but as God's children. 
It's no longer defined by bloodline, which for the Jewish people, it, it went back to being Abraham's sons and daughters and being a part of the bloodline of God's chosen people. And now God is saying, no, 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 it is defined not by heritage, but your, def your identity is now superseded and defined by whether you are in Christ because he makes us God's children and brings us into a new family. If you come to Jesus, everything changes. And so the people of God are completely redefined. We're adopted from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We're welcomed as children, given a share in the inheritance in light. And, and so this, this storyline is captured in John 1, that, that John is honest about the darkness of this world that we live in and clear about who God is and open about where our hope lies. And still, Christianity gets twisted up. And some of you have come here today thinking Christianity is primarily a religious ethic or a political platform or a set of, like, hollow proverbs, right? Like, well, that's a nice thing to teach. We can quote some verses like, judge not, lest ye be judged. That's a good one. We do less well with repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But Christianity is not those things at its core. At its core, Christianity is a story of God entering into the storyline of this world that he made to save us. John brings this up in a letter he wrote to a, to a church later on in 1 John. And he says there, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is the message of the gospel. This is it at its core. And this is what John is getting to. Now, this is important to us as well. Because, okay, so Redemption Hill, we just celebrated 10 years in August as a church. That's incredible. That's to see that God has kept this church going, that we're, we're still seeing new people come in and meet Jesus and get baptized and become members of the church. We're still involved in planting new churches. It's incredible to see his work in our midst. But from the beginning, we've talked about the idea of revival at Redemption Hill. Now, revival isn't something you can manufacture. We can't decide, like, hey, we're going to have revival. Let's schedule it for next year at this time. But revival is something we plead with God for to say, Lord, pour out your spirit. Make this happen in our midst. But in that, we also need to understand the characteristics of revival because I do think we can posture ourselves to be more open to the movement of God's spirit so that he would use us in that way. So there was a guy that in, that named W.B. Sprague that published his lectures on revival back in the early 1800s, who was reflecting on the Great Awakening and what happened in this country during the Great Awakening and trying to capture, like, what is the essence of revival? What are the characteristics we see? And it's really helpful for us, because I think if you're a Christian, most Christians, when we think about revival, either you think about, like, a tent meeting with a sawdust trail, or you think about, like, about the impact on people who don't know Jesus coming to salvation in Christ. And that's true, but it doesn't start there that consistently throughout church history, when we see God's spirit move in an intensification of his ordinary work, that it always starts in the church. 
it always starts among God's people. That it always starts with sleepy Christians being woken up to their faith. And so that imagery that we just talked about, about like some of, some of you are hitting the snooze alarm in your lives and very comfortable with just snuggling in with the darkness. You don't want to be awake. You don't want to wake up in your faith. You know that it's going to be, it'll be, make you less comfortable. It means that, that you're going to have to, it's going to be more self-sacrificial. And so you might be hitting the snooze alarm in your life. Well, revival, if you want to see, really want to see revival happens, it starts with God's people coming to a sense of repentance and waking up to the importance and vitality of our faith in Jesus. The second characteristic of revival is that nominal Christians come to repentance and belief. What that means is that there are plenty of people who sit in churches, who have grown up in churches, who know how to play the game at churches, but there is no actual faith in Jesus that is transformative in their lives. And so this, the way that it, the second characteristic works is those who have been sitting in churches already come to a point where they realize, maybe I'm not a Christian at all, and I need to come to saving faith. And so they, they actually come to faith in Jesus and have a gospel awakening. And that's when the third characteristic of revival, that lost people are saved. And so is, if we want to see those things, we need to see that, that he, Jesus brings us from darkness to light. And if we want to be a part of his work in bringing others from darkness to light, that starts in-house. So that's the third, fourth then. So light came into the world. God's own did not receive him. He brings us from darkness to light. And now, verse 14, God became human. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14, this verse is simultaneously profound and simple. It's powerful and it's poetic. Don Carson, a theologian, says, this is the supreme revelation. If we are to know God, neither rationalism nor irrational mysticism will suffice. The former, rationalism, reduces God to mere object. The latter, mysticism, abandons all controls. Even the revelation of antecedent scripture cannot match this revelation. And so you need to know today that, that this is the core of Christianity. This is the core claim of the Christian faith, is that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. God became human. And so when we talk about Jesus, we aren't just talking about a teacher. We're not just talking about a moment in human history, though it is a part of human history. When we're talking about Jesus, we are talking about God who created everything actually becoming a man. And that means that Jesus cannot be bound by mere culture, that he is the incarnate word, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life. And so here what we learn about this, it, there's so much the richness packed into this one verse. And so there's a linguistic tie here that the Holy Spirit moved in John's heart as he wrote these words down for us that I want to be able to draw out for you. And I'm, I tried, I mentioned this last week, I try to be cautious and careful with uh, going to the original languages too much. I never want to use this as like a trump card as like, here's why knowing the original language makes it so this is totally different. I don't think that's true at all, but I do think it's helpful here. So there's the word that John uses for dwell in the Greek language, in Koine Greek, is skenao. It's from the root skene. That means, so more literally here, we might say that John is saying the word became flesh 
and pitched his tent to dwell among us. It has that connotation to it. I don't think coincidentally, the same three consonant sounds in Hebrew are used to identify the tabernacle, which was a tent in which God's presence dwelled. And so we see this throughout the Old Testament scripture, and it's alluded to here directly, right? That we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on, John talks specifically in verse 17 about the law that had come through Moses. So it was on John's mind here, so he's looking back toward Exodus. And if you think back toward Exodus, if you know the storyline of Exodus, God's people were saved from the hands of Pharaoh. Moses led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and then Moses would meet with God, and he set up a tent of meeting outside the camp. Now, when he went out on, up on Sinai, he was there for 40 days. And do you remember what happened while Moses was gone for 40 days, meeting with God and receiving the law? People went crazy. Within 40 days, when he came back down the mountain, they were having a festival. Everybody was dancing. There was a whole celebration going on. And then in the middle of the camp, there was a statue of what? a golden calf. And it's one of the most amazing, like, one of the worst excuses you'll ever hear when Moses confronts Aaron and says, hey, I left you in charge. What happened? He's like, I don't know. People gave me gold, and I put it in the fire, and out came this calf. Like, when the, the language that, it, that is used is that Aaron painstakingly took time to fashion the gold around the calf. And so this was something that the people had turned to idolatry. I'm convinced that's why Moses shattered the tablets as he came down the mountain. It's because he didn't want the full force of God's law being implemented against the people in the midst of their rebellion and sin. And so it's in the aftermath of that then that Moses was interceding on behalf of God's people. He was, he was saying, Lord, don't leave without us. Don't go away without us. Don't, we're not leaving this place if your presence isn't going to go with us. And, and so as he does that, we have this moment in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 where Moses said to God, he's meeting with the Lord and praying and, and interceding on behalf of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, okay, you found favor in my sight and I know you by name, so I'm going to do this thing. I'll come with you. And that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses went on and said, please, Lord, show me your glory. I cannot read that verse without thinking about Jerry Maguire. Like, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And so God responded and said, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. He said, Moses, there's a crack in the rock. I'm going to put you there. I'm going to put my hand over you. My presence will pass before you. And when I leave, you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So he's saying, you are going to see the trailing edge of the back of my goodness, Moses. Because he knew what Moses needed in that moment wasn't just the glory, his glory. Because if God showed him his glory completely, it would have killed him. But what Moses needed was to know God's goodness, his faithfulness to his promises. And so what happened? God hit him in the rock. 
descended in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's his covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so this is, God proclaims his name to Moses. And Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So we have this, and then what comes from this is God sets up these intricate, detailed plans for the tabernacle, which the tabernacle was the tent of meeting that now was not on the outside of the camp, but it was at the center of the camp for Israel in the wilderness. And so there would be the tabernacle in the middle, and the tribes would form a circle around the tabernacle, and God's presence descended on the tabernacle when it was dedicated. And we read this in Exodus chapter 40, that his glory descended on the tabernacle and filled the tabernacle. And so that was at the center, and he sta- God's presence was seen by Israel as a pillar of cloud or a p- pillar of fire. And when the pillar would lift up, they'd pack up the whole tent. And they would follow God's presence until it settled in again, and they would rebuild the tent. And they followed God around in the wilderness for 40 years that way. Eventually, when you get to Solomon, Solomon, David made the preparations, but then Solomon finally built a permanent home in a temple where God's presence then, again, we read about God's glory filling the temple in 1 Kings 8. And so, and, and to the fear and awe of the people that when they finished the temple and dedicated God's glory filled that place. And that's where we get the language. This, this skenat or shekan is where we get the idea of shekinah glory, of God's dwelling glory among his people. All of that was just foreshadowing what was coming in Jesus. All of that. It's that background that when we read John 1.14, we read the Word. Remember, the Word is the one who made all things, and in him was life. The life was the light of men. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt, pitched a tent among us, and we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is grace and truth literally personified. We need this because every one of us has a sense of the darkness around us and within us. And today, some of you are struggling hard with it. And you keep turning to things that come up empty. Because you see a flicker of light but you know it's not gonna last. So we turn to friendships, thinking they're gonna fill that void, or sex, pleasure, or achievement, or money. None of those things are bad, but they'll never fulfill the longings of your heart, and we know that because the people that we see in this world who have the most of those things are still searching for something more because they're still dissatisfied. Jesus is the presence of God among us. The presence we read about walking with the man and the woman in the garden 
He's a restoration of what we were created for, foreshadowed in the tabernacle and temple, seen in Jesus, and then expected on his return. And so we see that in Revelation 21, that behold, the dwelling place of God, and when he comes to renew and restore all things, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And it goes on later on to say, and I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, its, it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so this is the promise that we look ahead to because the word took on flesh and tabernacled among us and is the fullness of the expression of God's glory on earth. So fifth and finally, we bear witness to the light. This is what we were made for. We bear witness to the light. In verse 16, it says, from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I think this first phrase is a little bit confusing. What does it mean, grace upon grace? I think the best way to understand this is that it gets clarified by what follows here. I think we can, we can sometimes draw too hard of a distinction between law and grace. And there is a distinction there in Scripture. And we'll see that plenty in John. But also, let's not forget that the law of Moses, the law given to Moses for God's people, was God's grace to his people. He said, I, I've already saved you out of Egypt. Now, I'd like to have a relationship with you for you to be my treasured possession. And do you want to do that? And the people said, yes and amen, we want to. And God said, okay, this is what it looks like to be my people. And so here, I think what John is saying is that God's grace came through the law of Moses to God's people, but now we have received an even more sure grace. Because it's not based on the law of Moses. It's not based on our ability to continue to keep ourselves ceremonially clean and in God's presence. Instead, it, our place is secured by the finished work of Jesus. The ultimate grace has come. And it's grace and truth that Christ fulfilled the law. And Moses was not allowed to see God because nobody could see God and live. And we know this too. Like, what happened to Moses when he experienced something of God's glory? Like, he came down from the mountain and his face was radiating. It was lit up. He was literally glowing. And people were scared, like we would be. Like, let's be honest about this. If, if, we were, if we had a leader we were following and he disappeared for a little while and then came back and his face was glowing, we'd be like, like, this is some Independence Day stuff. Like, what, what has happened here? And so Moses had to wear a veil over his face because people were too scared by it. But now we hear Jesus has made God known to us. The light of the world, the word made flesh, that anyone who has followed Jesus, who has believed in his name, is now called a child of God. We've been given a new bloodline and identity, and so that we all, when it says here, for, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, that we are included in the we all if you follow Jesus. As this brings with it an opportunity and a responsibility if you're a Christian, that 
you can't experience the glory of God and the fullness of Jesus Christ and become a follower of Jesus Christ without that showing up in your lives, even if it comes in a way that is going to be hard for other people to take in. You will eventually, in your life, radiate something of God's image and likeness and light and glory. Um, when I was in doing youth ministry, before we planted a church, Alyssa and I did youth ministry for a while, for a long time, for like 12 years, and... Um, and you get to do some more creative things than we usually would do on a Sunday. In part, like, I mean, right now, we can't see the screens. I'm becoming aware as I watch all of you <laughs> because of the sunlight that is streaming through. And I wish that all of you had the view that I do in the same. I get the, most, I get the best view here with all of the stained glass on the back wall. And it's just streaming through in this evening service. And, it, and it's beautiful, but um, yeah, we also can't see anything. So it would be impossible for us to try what I'm about to describe to you. But I can remember I was teaching on similar themes of light and darkness and our comfort with the darkness. And I um, was, at one time we had our lights on faders. And so I had somebody that was part of my youth ministry team um, that stood it and slowly over like a half hour of teaching these middle school students faded the lights down. And it got so dark in the room, but nobody said anything. It's like the classic like, parable of the frog in a, boil, in a pot of water, right? Like, if you heat it up slowly, the frog will boil. I, we didn't boil any middle schoolers. I need to be clear on that. Nobody was hurt. But we slowly faded the lights out until it was super dark in the room. Nobody notices as it happened. And again, a metaphor here that we, we become used to darkness easily. And darkness isn't painful when we enter into it usually. It can feel suffocating at times, but it isn't painful. But then, when you flip the lights back on at full strength, it hurts, right? Now, you do that in a room full of adults, and adults have filters, and you, I might get a little bit of like, uh, and squinting. When you do that in a room full of middle schoolers, I had like kids diving under couches, you know, kids that'll just start screaming, like a kid in the corner just running in circles because he doesn't know what to do with his nervous energy. And so, like, there's no filter there. There's just pure expression of, ah, the light! It's like, <laughs> like, I don't know how Will Ferrell captured things so perfectly in Elf, but it was like that, but like 40 of them. But it shows us something. That when we get used to darkness, the light isn't something we actually want. It hurts sometimes. Now, I think personally, there's some of you that aren't turning to Jesus, even though you believe this, you believe he's true, you're just scared of what's going to get exposed in your life. But on another real practical level here, if you're a Christian and you're walking closely with Christ, the fullness of the radiance of the glory of God in human flesh, who died in your place for your sin, was raised from death to life because light cannot be defeated by darkness who ascended to the throne and now reigns and rules and is returning to make all things new. If that's really who you worship and who you follow in your life, you are going to begin to radiate something of his presence. And you shouldn't ever be surprised when that, becomes, when that feels harsh and offensive to people in your life who are still deep, deep in darkness. That's going to be the reality. Remember how Jesus was received. He, his people didn't know him, and his own people did not receive him. We shouldn't expect to receive better than the word who took on flesh. But we're also called to not live with veiled faces. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that, that we have been entrusted with the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. We carry it around as jars of clay, earthenware vessels. We are fragile and cracked, but God has chosen his people as his instrument to bring this world to redemption. Because we bring around the light of the glory of Christ and what he has accomplished in redeeming and restoring us. And so in Jesus, we have seen God's glory and we live then, we were called to live with boldness, unveiled, radiating God's glory into darkness. And, and in the midst of that, what do we possibly have to be afraid of if we actually believe this is true? You have to be afraid of people rejecting us or being angry with us about having somebody who doesn't want to be our friend? Or do we have to be afraid of even death itself? See, we have the promise also that where there are two or three of us gathered together, Christ, in Christ's name, he is present in our midst. And so when we gather together, we can be confident that by his spirit, he is present with us today. And so my hope today is that your heart would be lifted and that something of the light of the glory of Christ would be able to get into the darkness that you're experiencing. God's grace is embodied now in the church, and he is present here with us today. And, and so my hope is, those of you who are living in darkness and walking in darkness, that you would come into the light today knowing it's going to hurt. It'll take some time for your eyes to adjust, but it's worth it because it'll save you. My prayer is for those of you who are following Jesus, that as we leave this place, you would more boldly reflect the light of his glory because this place needs it. Our city needs it. Your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors need hope. We offer hope in Christ. Let's pray. And Father, would you help us with this? It's hard for us sometimes to even recognize how much we've been walking in darkness and how comfortable we've gotten with it. So I pray today that you would turn our hearts not just even to recognizing that there is darkness around us, but would you move in us so that we can't be comfortable in it anymore, but we recognize how suffocating it can feel? Would you help us to see that that we're stumbling around and that we need the light to be able to see more clearly? Would you help us to have confidence that when we read in Acts 17 that you have determined the places we live and the boundaries and times we live there, that you've entrusted this moment in this place to us so that reaching out we would, we would find you even though you're not far from every one of us. And I pray that your people would reflect the light of your glory more clearly and more beautifully and that you might use us as instruments to bring revival to our city. So we thank you that the darkness cannot overcome the light. And we pray that you would help us to believe and to trust that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.